Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's Council, trial lawyers and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, Bibi Badejo, and today's guest is James Rapley QC. James is a barrister from Bridgeside Chambers in Christchurch, New Zealand. He's a specialist in criminal defence cases, which include serious fraud, drug, murder and serious sexual crimes. In today's episode, we discuss how to make your written submissions or briefs stand out and also how to prepare yourself for appearing before an appeal court. Hello, James. Hi. Can you just tell us a bit more about yourself, please? I'm a barrister in New Zealand, Queen's Council, as as you mentioned, a new Queen's Council appointed in 2018. I'm on the uh, Council of the New Zealand Bar Association, practice predominantly in criminal law, teach advocacy here in Christchurch, University of Canterbury, and in the University of South Pacific, and in Samoa, and I've taught in Australia. I have two beautiful girls who are both at university, a lovely wife and a little dog that keeps us busy. That just sounds wonderful. (laughs) And of course, you teaching in Australia, that's where we met on the advanced advocacy course in Melbourne. Yes, it was. Yeah, great course. And the Australians do those things really well. Kiwis don't really like to say Australians do things very well, but uh, they do do that well. And great courses at the Australian Bar Association, well run, really good courses. So let's look at your journey as an advocate. And you've had quite a varied career because you first started as a um, solicitor, didn't you, before moving to the bar? Yeah, that's right. So New Zealand's a fused profession. So you can go out as a barrister or you can be a barrister and a solicitor. And if if you're a solicitor, you've got full rights of audience. So I started um, 1990, 30 years ago, and went to a big firm in Christchurch, well, big by New Zealand standards, and commercial, commercial litigation, and uh, really enjoyed that. Had a great mentor, loved it. But then I moved to a small firm, and uh, still commercial civil litigation, and then into the serious fraud office, and some time spent there before doing my OE and going to to England. And, uh, you know, managed to work over there for a couple of years, had a great time. Back home, and uh, and then into serious real law and the reality of um, you know, forging a career. So a variety of things and Crown Prosecutor for about five years, so prosecuting for about 10 and um, barrister since 2004. As a solicitor, when you were working as a solicitor and you've said that of course you have full rights of audience there, was there a difference in the standard of your advocacy at that point and did it change? when you were called to the bar and started practicing as a barrister? There sure was a difference in my standard of, um, uh, of advocacy. <laughs> so, I mean, back when I started, uh, not that I'm a complete dinosaur, but th- there wasn't any, you know, advocacy courses, wasn't taught at university. Perhaps a very American thing, if I can say that. Now it's everywhere. We, we, we know about it. It's taught and it's something that we, um, we all love. But... I sort of fell out of law school and didn't have any idea what advocacy was, let alone how to spell it. And before I knew it, I was in in the high court. (laughs) I do remember uh, doing a witness action in the high court, a couple of months experience, and um, a high court judge saying to me, you know, Mr. Rapley, maybe you should begin your uh, questions with who, what, why, or where, (laughs) right? (laughs) I had no idea what he was talking about and just, continued on you know I thought maybe I need to maybe he's onto something and uh, found some advocacy books and just started reading and in those days they were Canadian and American and and went from there now of course it's a different playing field there's an element of self-teaching by you researching reading books and so on so what would you say is a unique skill that you have or perhaps an easier question might be a particular 
skill that you have as an advocate? For me, unique skill I might have is just an ability to, to get on with people and read people and a good feel for people. And that's probably why I'm a trial lawyer in the main and um, have an ability to read a witness, I think, and a client for that matter, and turn a jury. So, and just being able to talk to a jury normally, tell them why, you know, they need to make that decision and come to a certain conclusion. I think, and I hope from my background and personality and that that's, that's my unique, well, not unique, but my, my skill. <laughs> that <laughs> um, I would definitely agree with you. You're very personable and relatable. One thing that I that I've just picked up from what you said is reading people. Is there anything in particular that you do? Let's go with the witness first. Yeah. But is there anything in particular that you are looking for or that you pick up on in order for you to effectively read a witness? When you're in the trial, you're looking at the witness, right? And that's what you've got to be careful with. You're not looking down at your notes and getting ready for your next question and sort of getting a feel. So as a defence lawyer, you'll be watching the witness, wanting to take notes, but watching the witness and getting a feel for them. Obviously, you don't always get it right, but you get a sense for when they're an honest witness and, you know, merely mistaken or just honest or fibbing. You know, I look for the signs of when they, um, you know, don't exaggerate or they um, accept the wrong or downplay things, particularly, uh, or hallmarks that they're, they're telling the truth. You know, you've always got to have a plan. Are you playing the, the ball or the man? Are they an honest but mistaken witness or are they a, a liar? And, and most are um, doing the best, aren't they? It's seldom that you come across the bull-faced liars. Sometimes in criminal cases you do, and you have to deal with it. And is this something that you literally do immediately? Obviously, with your client, you have more time with them. You really get a sense of their character. But with the mm. witness, is it the case that sometimes you see them for the first time when they actually come into court? You've read their statement, but they've come into court for the first time, and these are snap decisions that you're making which shape your cross-examination of them. I mean, it is a bit of a snap decision, isn't it? But you get a feel for the language they're using and what's in their statements. And, you know, if you can, you do a wee bit of work around them, depending on how important they are, and talk to your client about them, get a feel for them. But as I say, sometimes your client will, will, will give you a stare, but they've got various thoughts or biases or um, whatever it might be. And they're, of course, a party. So you've got to make your own independent judgment. And... Just normally, as I say, the context and what they say and whether it sounds right, you know, independently corroborated and you know that often before you go in and then it's just confirmed or not often when, when they're actually giving their evidence. I also wanted to ask you about your book because you've co-written a book called Advocacy. Do you know what sort of impact it's had on students and practitioners alike? Well, yes, I have written a book, co-authored it. Um, what sort of impact, uh, I don't think it's um, shaken the literary world, but it's, I mean, it's had an impact on my, some of my poor students because they have to buy it. So a financial one, <laughs> but it's relatively modest, I have to say. But the impact I feel most proud about is um, teaching in the South Pacific, Vanuatu. It's a very poor country. Facilities are poor, the universities, you know, it's quite staggering, really. We're, you know, we're talking um, very basics. And I'd bring books over for them, teach there once a year, or have done up until recently with problems with international travel. And I see an impact on them, firstly, just to have a book in some form of guidance and structure and to help them through it. There's different pressures. And that gives them a document to fall back on and get some help because they don't often get the help they need. So, yeah, I think it's had an impact and seemed to be well received. And before we started recording, we were talking about some of the books that we had read, which I'll go into a bit later. But can you give us a bit more of a background as to why you decided to write a book on advocacy? Well, 
back in my day, um, all the textbooks were, were either English or, or American and Canadian. Not that's wrong, but I wanted to write a book for New Zealand and the South Pacific. It's, it's aimed at New Zealand practitioners in the main. And Thomson Reuters asked me and approached me because I was lecturing at university, which was lovely and I was very flattered, and did that with a judge. So I wanted to write a book, you know, for New Zealand. We had Moe's Fundamentals of Trial Technique. You might remember that and probably used it or seen it. Canadian text, and it would be changed a little bit for New Zealand, but not quite. That was the, the reason for writing it. And I took a lot of concepts from different books that I've been reading. One great book that I really love is um, Keith Evans' Golden Rules of Advocacy. I don't know if you come across it, English. Yes. Superb. And so that, that was a book that really changed things for me. I read that and thought, yes, it's so readable, witty, funny. There's The Devil's Advocate, of course, another great English book. It's just not such a slog like some of these texts can be. Not that mine's in that level, but I was given the opportunity to, to do something. I want to explore with you the different skill sets, or whether or not there is a different skill set between trial advocacy and appellate advocacy, because we're going to be delving into the latter. Is there a different skill set that trial lawyers should have and barristers should have if they're going to be before appeal courts? Good question. Well, well, there's similarities between a trial lawyer and, um, and an appellate lawyer. Most advocates are both. Uh, certainly in New Zealand, but some specialise and probably in you know, the big cities like London more so. But even here, some will specialise in one or the other. Whether you're a, a trial lawyer or an appellate lawyer, you know, every argument, and I believe, and not just me and others more eloquent than me say it, that can be distilled to the same simple sort of structure. And it's a, a variation of the classical categorical syllogism. So these facts viewed in the context of, of this law or statute or contract or whatever it might be case leads to this conclusion. So it doesn't matter whether it's civil or family or criminal, that's how you're going to structure your argument. But presenting your argument before a jury, that's the difference. And you know that and we all know that the jury factor can make a big difference and mean it's, you've got to be careful and it can be difficult for a trial lawyer to adjust <laughs> to that different forum. So first we're going to look at written submissions and then look at the actual advocacy within a, an appellate court. Just to clarify for our listeners, in England we refer to them as skeleton arguments and I know in the States they are briefs. What do you call them in New Zealand, James? Uh, written submissions, yeah. So we'll, we'll file written submissions, yeah. Written so. submissions. What do judges want to see in written submissions? Because I get the feeling that what we as advocates would like to put in our written submissions sometimes isn't exactly what judges want to read. Well, judges always say and, and they want submissions that are brief and concise, don't they? And whether you go to a, a bar conference or read articles from judges or just talk to them, they're talking brevity and concise. It's interesting because I've been, I've been thinking about it a little bit, given that you know I knew we were going to be talking about the subject. And not long ago, um, you know, in the 80s, uh, when I sort of started my career and we started university, and written submissions just they just went filed. So, uh, you know, if you, if you get some articles, look at Australian Law Journal, you'll see Chief Justice in 1986 talking about written submissions being filed and calling it the American method, the American way. And up until that point, they weren't filed. So that's not that long ago, but times have changed, even down under. <laughs> so we know that the written submission is the most important thing, and I'm sure you're gonna, we're going to talk about that in, in depth, but this written submission remains. It's visible even when the sound of counsel's voice is long gone, you know, no longer vibrates in the courtroom, and the judges might have taken some notes but not got those 
real zingers that you've delivered. They just were looking elsewhere or wondering what was for dinner. And they, they get back to their room and have to write a judgment and your written submission still with them. So if it's drafted properly, and we'll talk about this, I know, it shapes the court's thinking from the get-go before they even step into court, hopefully persuades them, hopefully they adopt it. And as they step out of court, they've still got it with them. So it's a key document there, isn't it? And so what they want to see is something that's going to help them and it's brief and concise, such an important um, item. We hear that advice that it should be brief and concise, but still have these long-winded <laughs> <laughs> submissions that are handed in. I know what I try and do is I try and cut it down by at least 10%. So I have the number of pages and I say to myself, right, you're going to get this down by between, I'd say 10 to 25%. And then I start being quite ruthless. Are there any steps that you take or guidance that you have for yourself to make it as punchy as possible? It's a really good point. And it depends on your um, personality, doesn't it? I'm a bit talkative or chatty. And especially, you know, if, you, if you're dictating these submissions, that's a real issue too, and, you know, before you know it. And it depends how you're drafting it, doesn't it? And who's crafting it? Um, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine in London, QC. He said, oh, I haven't drafted a first draft of submissions for years, you know, and sort of third or fourth draft. That person's critiquing it and refining it and reducing it. It's harder to do that when you've created it, perhaps. So one of the best things is to you write it and then you're just so happy you've written it because it's a, to, off your to-do list, isn't it? <laughs> and you want to move on to your next pressing problem. So you've got to put it down and then come back to it. And that's difficult if you're under pressure and you're running late and hitting timetables and deadlines and things. So headings and subheadings helps you and we'll come to that. But how to be concise, active, voice, more forceful and normally eliminates two, three words at least, keeping short sentences, but you've got to vary the length, otherwise it becomes a bit weird. And just structuring it and thinking about it and taking your time, organizing your paragraphs, will mean it becomes short and concise um, rather than lengthy and rambling. And I know I definitely have been guilty of those. Uh I suppose one thing that I do worry about is going too far in one direction and trying to be really concise, but stripping out the argument. For us, it's a skeleton argument, so it's the bare bones of your argument, but of course it should be comprehensive. How do you find that balance where it's really like super punchy, everything's in there, but it just doesn't go waffling on for ages and ages, boring the judge and any other poor soul that has to read it? It's a good question, isn't it? The million dollar question. Practice in just refining it and refining it and refining it and saying, well, I can take out those facts. So taking out unnecessary facts, getting rid of dates and times and you know, who cares usually and describing things in a more concise way will do it. Uh, getting rid of big block quotes from cases, the seldom needed Sometimes you see like a whole page is a quote from a case. So it better be pretty good and pretty important. Uh, otherwise, you incorporate the point you make in your own paragraph. If the citation of the point you're making is accepted, then you just make it once with one case and it's a footnote. You don't need to refer to the facts or the details or what was held about the case. If it's controversial and you're trying to say that the decision is wrong, well, then the situation will be different. Won't you? you need to go into the facts and talk about why. And so that does shape it. So you need to work out what are you using that quote for? What are you using that citation for? Why is it even in there? It doesn't need to be in there. And that will help get rid of the dross and the volume and the padding. Since you brought up case law, I can ask you a bit further about that. How do you incorporate that in your submissions? And the reason why I ask that is because I was taught you do your brief introduction, give a summary of the facts, then you have your section on the law, and then you go into the analysis. But what I found is 
I can have pages and pages on the law and then I'm not able to effectively draw out the points within the analysis without repeating myself. So um, Yeah, because you repeat yourself. Exactly. Mm. So th mm. there you go. That's something I can take out. Lesson learned for Vivi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, well, that's right. All judges say, you know, what's your point? Get to your point. Make your point. Highlight your point and deal with your point. And it does come down to it. So what is this point that you're trying to make? Now, you th everyone thinks, well, I've got to go through the facts. Well, wh why do you have to go through all the facts? Are, are they all really, really relevant? Or, you know, this is a case about boom, 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 in a paragraph or two. Here's the key fact that's important. So it does take a bit of time and using case law, um, you know, why are you citing the, the case law, as I said? Um, secondary authorities and articles, sometimes you get all excited and before you know it, you're, you're citing things from law journals around the world. So what? Well, B, what, what's your point? And the point needs to be too, it's not that the author agrees with you, which is normally why most people cite it. It's the prominence of the author that's important, right? That's where people lose sight of it. it who is this person who's written this article, <laughs> right? And, and that's what we know that with the, with the court. It's the, the court and the judgment and the judge or whatever that's saying those words that you say should be followed or important or listen to them, you know, they make the difference. So just because it happens to be in the New Zealand Law Journal or Cambridge Law Journal for all that, so what? And that's what you need to bear in mind and then it better be good. I mean, you just cite it. Those are things perhaps you think about when, when use quotations, use them sparingly, weave them into your own paragraphs rather than resorting to block quotes. All those keep to that golden rule of short, sharp and to the point. Speaking of short, sharp to the point, you've raised some questions. So what? What's your point? Is that actually one of the best ways that you can critique your own submissions by continually asking yourself, like, okay, so what? Mm. Why is that in there? Mm. What's your point? And yep. that assists with the being concise yet comprehensive and really delivering the point in a powerful way. Yeah, absolutely. And why does it matter? Often you're quite excited because you've found the point. And, <laughs> uh, and sometimes be a bit of pressure on you to find one. And you have to, you know, and, and we do this as part of, talking to our client, yes, but how big is the error and what's the harm done and why does it matter? And that's what you're going to weave into it because ultimately, particularly in my jurisdiction in criminal law, you may be right. This wasn't quite right. The judge did muck that up in the summing up or whatever it might be. But overall, the, the court are going to say, well, yeah, but did it really matter? You know, the evidence was overwhelming or he confessed or whatever it might be. And it's the same in a civil case. So what though? That's what the court are going to be asking themselves. And you need to ask yourself that as you're working your way through it. And that'll focus your mind. Brilliant. <laughs> well, hopefully it will. Uh, yeah, well, you'd hope so. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I am definitely going to be incorporating that. The so what, what's your point? In I've got submissions to write after this, so I will definitely be taking that on. Now, the other thing that I wanted to ask you was really about your opponent's arguments and how you deal with that. I know that for some people, they go straight into the attack and it's one of the first things that come up within the written submissions, which is my opponent is wrong because X which sometimes doesn't work in your favor because you're just highlighting everything that they said before you even start your argument. How do you deal with your opponent's arguments and being able to destroy what they've said? That's a technical term. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, look, it's a combative arena in, in some ways, isn't it? So you've got an opponent, they've put forward an argument, you disagree with it, what are you gonna do about it? Depends who you act for. If you're the appellant, that's who you're acting for. You want to put a positive argument forward. You know what they're probably going to say about it, which you, you, know, you might not, but you don't want to start on that. And they always say, everyone suggests that you, if you're going to refute something, say they're wrong. And by the way, if they 
dare raise this argument that they're silly. You do that in the middle and not at the beginning and not at the end because at the end that's the last thing that the judges remember. So you want them to be focusing on your point. Now, if you're the respondent, you're in like the leader of the opposition, you're poking holes and saying this is wrong, that's wrong or whatever it might be. You still want to make it a positive argument if you can uh, and then refute depending you know, what, the, what the argument is. You'll get a chance to refute of course if you're the appellant in reply but you'll only get a chance to do that orally. So that's my suggestion. Bury the, the opponent's arguments in the middle. I'm going to bring up books again. One book that we have both read and really enjoyed is Ross Guberman's Point Made, How to Write Like the Nation's Top Advocates. I found it really helpful because it gave concrete examples of what you can do to improve your own written advocacy. What did you enjoy about the book? Well, it is a great book. You're quite right. Really good book. It's so well written. It's got great headings in itself. That's what I loved about it. It, it, There's new stuff in there. So, for example, about headings and how to use them, which I really loved. The heading, for example, says mince their words. You know, so talking about using their words to build your own argument. You know, it's humorous, but it uses examples, American examples, I must say. So a lot of them, it's a wee bit different than our jurisdiction, but good examples and very readable. Another thing that I picked up from that was, A, about the headings, that you can actually tell your story or give the judge a flavour of your argument, because if they pick up your written submissions and just flick through it, just going through the headings, you can really make impactful statements and form an idea in their heads simply by the headings and subheadings alone. So I thought that was interesting. But is that something you did anyway? Not really, no. And that's why it's so good. And look, these are books that I've recently discovered. I've been around for a while. And that's the thing about advocacy and your testament to too by travelling to Australia to attend courses. We're senior, but we still go to courses and want to learn and want to read more about these ways of persuading in our chosen profession and that's what's so good about it and that's what you have to do if you want to be good i must confess my my headings were boring you know i had introduction facts the issue submission conclusion like whoa my goodness i mean could it get any worse so i see these examples in in his book use the heading as part of your persuasive argument. And when you do that, it just makes such a difference and it really captures your attention. And then I started noticing more that that's how good advocates write their submissions and that's how judges write their judgments. And we know that. So the heading also really focuses your mind and focuses what your point is. When you're in criminal law, you've got one or two points what went wrong, tell your story, make it interesting, make it entertaining, make the argument interesting as well, and the heading should be part of that. Are there any other books that you found helpful for written submissions or advocacy in general? Well, I mean, I mentioned The Devil's Advocate, but that's just a nice, easy read, and Keith Evans' Golden Rules. Making Your Case by Justice Scalia and Brian Garner, who's a specialises in writing and English and, and um, Justice Scalia, Supreme Court judge of some standing. That's a great book too. And it's easy to read. Take bits out of it that you like. You don't have to agree with everything, bits and pieces. But, it's, but that's a good book. I really recommend that one. I agree. And I think one thing that was so interesting about it was it became a conversation between Justice Scalia and Garner, I think there was one point they don't agree about footnotes. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Garner says you should never put anything of substance in a footnote. And I've fallen into the trap, and again, back to trying to be concise, of putting huge block quote or um, adding points or adding facts into your footnotes. And I think that's where Garner's coming from. But 
the mere fact that they're talking about that and that you are reading that book means that you are thinking about it and ahead of the game compared to many of our colleagues. And that's got to be good for, for your own professional development and getting better at this. If we're looking at constant improvement, um, what are your thoughts on going to the Court of Appeal and just watching the advocates do what they do there? Do it. Those are my thoughts. Absolutely. I mean, I still, I mean, I do that. Not that I'm the best appellate and advocate there was and shouldn't be watching things. But if I see there's a case on, I know it's a, a silk or a senior barrister that's impressive. And I've got the time. I'll sit in and listen and learn. And I did that when I was starting off. I did that throughout my whole career. Anyone who's starting new to the law, new barrister, young barrister, wanting to get into appellate advocacy, go along to the Court of Appeal, just sit in the back, get there early, follow the whole argument. You can't just pop in and pop out and soak it up. And if we turn to you and what you have done personally to improve your appellate advocacy, we've spoken about books that we've both read. You'd go to the Court of Appeal and watch appellate advocacy. Is there anything else that you have undertaken to take you up to that next level? Courses, you know, if there's a course out there and it's a good one, that's another great way of, you know, improving your advocacy and challenging yourself and bringing and getting out of your comfort zone. It's difficult to do. I mean, you know, we were on the trial advocacy intensive in Australia. You, you might remember there was a Queen's Council that was a participant and he had been in the international arena and then wanted to hone his skills and good on him and to his credit and silks take these courses five six years ago i'm a trial lawyer in the main as i said and just felt i needed to improve myself and went to um australia australian bar association aba you've got a an appellate advocacy intensive three or four days from memory it was in brisbane at that time and i took that course it was aimed at senior lawyers run by some great people silks from around australia super course took me right out of my comfort zone it was a federal court of appeal civil case with constitutional issues it's really challenging for me who does criminal law but learned so much so much it was incredible and great experience and you meet great people so do it if you get the opportunity and you did that bb to your credit all the way to australia take those courses keep looking for them you make great fans you improve your advocacy no end that's what you should do absolutely that's really inspiring that someone who is as advanced and experienced as you are is still or had still gone on um a course to improve themselves and educate themselves. So let's turn now to appellate advocacy. You've handed in your submissions, they've been lodged at the court and you're going to start. Can you help me with, with this really? What do you say? And it is a basic question, but I'll ask it anyway. What is the difference in delivering your closing speech at the end of a trial and giving a speech to the Court of Appeal or Supreme Court, any appellate court, really? Well, there's similarities. They're both oral addresses, and you're both seeking to persuade, but your audience is different. And there's perhaps a far more important and significant difference, I think, particularly for, um, for criminal law, in that a criminal case, in my view anyway, the role of the, of the advocate is to tell the fact finder, the judge or jury, but we're talking jury trials really, why their client's not guilty, the prosecutor, why they are guilty. And in doing so, you're conscious though that there's a usually a key issue or key element or um, something hasn't, hasn't been proved or disproved if it's a positive defense, whatever it might be. But in every case in a jury trial, you are highlighting the evidence and telling the jury what the evidence means and how they can use it. So many lawyers in a, in a jury trial have done really well, have cross-examined, you can sort of see their theory, and then they close and, and just repeat the evidence 
and just tell them what they've heard. So you might as well have just got the notes of evidence and just said, read this, and that's your closing. So in a trial, you're telling them what the evidence means and then how they can use it. You're not repeating it. But for um, the central difference, I suppose, in the delivery, though, and I think that's what you're talking about, is if you're just talking about delivery, your presentation and your manner of speaking, you've got to be careful about that, and we've talked about that a little bit, I think. When you're talking to judges, you've got to be careful you don't fall into the trap of being too emotive or appealing to their emotions or being a bit too flamboyant, however you want to put it. But even in a jury trial, you've got to realise that it's um, the jury's emotion, not yours. And emotion follows the facts. You can't be too silly about it in a jury trial. But there are similarities. You've got to speak distinctly, start strongly, finish strongly, be selective, brief. Look at your audience. You look at your jury. Look at your judges. You've got to be careful with looking at your jury too intently. And the intent steer in the animal kingdoms are threatened only, so you want to just take that easy. But same with your judges, you want to steer them down. But you've got multiple judges, and I think one of the major differences with in, in appeal, you're looking at the judges and you're trying to read them, watching them taking notes, who's going to be writing the judgment, and what's the composition like, who's in charge. Sometimes you can tell in New Zealand Court of Appeal because there's a permanent Court of Appeal judge and two high court judges assigned if it's a, a divisional court, but if it's a permanent court, there's three court of appeal judges. So, you know, those are the differences. You've got a different audience, trying to read them differently. Your audience might ask you some questions in the appeal, but they don't do that in the jury trial. <laughs> uh, at least if they do, it gets, can get a bit messy. So when you're preparing for your submissions to the court, what preparation do you undertake? And we can take this in stages. Like as, as you've mentioned, you're going to have a number of judges that you are going to be delivering your speech to. How far do you go into the research of them, i.e. do you look at their previous cases? How do you get a sense of them? That's really important. You know, I know in America, they, well, I've read in America, I don't know, that they take that really seriously, don't they? And, and debate the judges and how they're going to go one way and they've got a constitutional system and it's a bit different but for me and in, in, in here in New Zealand you, you do need to know your judge you need to know your audience because you're trying to within reason get them to reach an opinion that is you know we agree with you we accept you and, and opinions you know fragile things why should I come to that why should I prefer that over another one a logical thinkers but still so you need to research your judge know what they like and what they don't like. I mean, just recently, you know, I hadn't researched my judge. Mind you, it was for a high court, but it was still an appeal, and it was an out-of-town judge. And so this judge seems to really like written submissions. If it's not in written submissions, that throws this judge off their game. So I started, you know, with my oral submission and did my um, introduction and did my mihi, and we do that in te reo Māori in New Zealand. We try to, and I, you know, have to prepare that. And then launched into my oral submissions, and the judge got really cross because that wasn't in the written material. <laughs> but I think it was because the judge at the end hadn't perhaps read the written material, wasn't up to speed, and I just, you know, you need to get a feel for the different judges, and some do and some don't. So in answer to your question, you need to know your audience, need to know your judge, and then you need to know what sort of law do they like. We have judges here that are very pro-Bill of Rights or more liberal, obviously, or more conservative, and you'll have the same. And um, you need to be alive to that. But that's where your questions will come from. That's where your confrontations will come from. Who's going to be um, the one that's going to give you the judicial uppercut and be a bit cross, and who's going to be the nice, nice one? <laughs> And looking at preparation for yourself, so for example, do you memorise your speech? Do you practice it? Do you rehearse your arguments in front of a trusted panel of colleagues? How do you prepare? You know, I prepare by reading and rereading and rereading my submissions and getting everything sort of sorted so I know where it all is in my case book and 
using my devices and getting that all sorted. Prepare myself by having a two, three page bullet point of you know, my oral opening points that you want to make where, you, where you've got the attention of the court. And depending on how I am and what sort of case it is, and look, let's be frank about it, depending on the case and what's at stake and how familiar you feel with it, that adds to your nerves. And if you're super stressed by it, sometimes you just have to write things out and that gives you comfort and relaxes you. There's no prizes for having a blank sheet of paper and trying to um, follow what Justice Scalia says, where he says you should have nothing and then freezing. So I prepare myself by reading it and reading it and trying to memorize it. And then as best I can, leave my notes and then just deliver it. If I'm stumbling, I just have to go back to my notes, depending on the, on the topic. And um, those are just things you just have to have time, make time to do. So you're at court, you've prepared as much as possible in terms of how you're going to deliver the argument, but of course it doesn't always go that way. And you might get that judicial uppercut. How do you prepare for those difficult questions that can be thrown at you? You need to anticipate what they might ask. What's your weakness? You should know it. It's no different than being in trial. A lot of lawyers don't seem to you know, they've got their questions, they know the, the topics they need to ask, we've got their questions all sorted out in their mind, but they're not prepared for the, the answer they don't want. If they give me this answer, this is how I'll sort of go. If they give me this answer, this is how I'll respond. And that's the mental process you have to do as you work your way through it. And the same with your submissions. But there's always going to be a time when you just get a, a question right out of left field Sometimes you get a question that's not even on point and you're wondering whether the judge is in the right courtroom. <laughs> you know, like, it's in a criminal appeal, right? But the way the, the judge goes, she's got a, a point in has a, her mind and you just have to deal with it. And if you don't understand it, you have to ask, rephrase it. But you've got to be careful there that you're not trying to just avoid the question. So, yeah, you just got to prepare for those questions by preparing and not worrying that occasionally something will come out of left field and that's when it will throw you off your game won't it it just happens roll with those punches i think for me that's definitely one of the things that worries me the most is um a guessing a question that i didn't anticipate or being asked a question where i understand that they're speaking english but i do not understand what they are saying are there any tips that you have where you get that question and you just don't understand it and you don't know how to answer it. Like what should be the next step that you take? Well, you just have to be honest, don't you? Because your career and reputation and standing is you know, bigger than this one case. I remember in the court of appeal to this day, but you know, the judge was very kind. I was arguing away and the judge said, well, that just can't be right. That just doesn't sit with, Manasseh, remember it's a hearsay case. And I looked at him blankly and he said, have you read that? Surely you know it doesn't sit with that. And I hadn't read it and didn't know. And just said, look, I'm sorry, I just haven't read it. I, I don't know. And the judge just sat back and said, well, this is what the case is about. This, 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 it decided this, these are the facts, boom, 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 boom. So that's why I'm saying this. That's the point. Now, it's not in a good position to be, but... Well, I was going to be exposed pretty <laughs> sharply. So, so you just do that. And that's what you'd expect. And that's what our role is, to be upfront, and, and the court will appreciate that. And do you have any suggestions or techniques for calming your nerves? Because, of course, this is a nerve-wracking experience for many, even those who have lots of experience in it. But how do you calm your nerves, A, as you arrive to the podium to deliver your oral submissions and how do you also calm your nerves when you find yourself in that position where something is worrying you and you're you're anxious about that we all get nervous at least i think we all do some people hide it well some people just don't seem to they're just so confident aren't they confident public speakers confident people confident in life you just like well, how do they do it but 
I've seen very experienced lawyers, silks for 10, 20 years, stressed, nervous, wound up, can't sleep at night. But on the other hand, some just seem to deal with it. It's tried, everyone says preparation is the key. Preparation, preparation, preparation. Knowing the material is crucial, and that means you need time. And the problem usually is you just haven't had the time. You've been too stressed or, or, or pressured. And so somehow, some way, you have to make the time. And if you've got the good support and you're lucky to have that and not just work, you know, life-wise, just generally, in those moments where you are stressed, you just have to realise that you're good, that you know the case, that you're entitled to be there. And so within reason, and I'm you know, not very good at following my own advice always, but breathing, and my wife always says to me, breathe, just breathe. And you'll find yourself, you just, you're not breathing. If you seriously think about it, you're so tense. Take a deep breath. Before I get to the podium, I take a big breath and just think to myself, I know this stuff, particularly if you're the trial lawyer. And you're like, I know it. Right? I mean, I may not know every case in the books, but I know these facts. I know the key cases for this. I'm all over it. And I'm entitled to be here. And if you can say that to yourself, I know it sounds a bit weird in some ways, but if you can say that to yourself, settle yourself down, and then just get in there and enjoy it. We're very fortunate to be able to be doing this sort of work. Debating with judges, fun, should be occasionally, and uh, arrive early, do whatever you have to do. Avoid having lots of water and coffees in the morning. <laughs> and just don't get caught out doing that. And I think too, you know, it's a bit of time in the game. That sounds terrible, but that's just what it's like. And then once you start seeing these judges, whether it's at conferences or maybe you know from the courses that you're doing, when you see these judges involved in the courses and teaching, you know that generally speaking, most people are good people. Judges just doing their job. They're humans, they're lawyers, they're like us. Eventually, friends become judges and they've got their own strengths and failings and removes the fear and you just say back yourself I can do it I'm good at this and you'll be fine that's what I say to myself (laughs) every time that's great great advice how do you make sure that your oral submissions are enhancing what you've put in writing instead of just repeating it or reading it out they'll be delivered differently from how words are expressed in the, in the written document, aren't they? Not that I'm very good on this, but you're looking at how documents, how a sentence looks on the page and you don't, when you're talking, it's you know, how it sounds, how it feels, the force you get from it. They're enhanced by delivering them free of notes because they sound fresh when you're speaking. And look, sure, you've got your notes there, but if you're just talking then that gives them some life, doesn't it? And so that enhances your written submissions because they're pretty dead, just black and white on the page, aren't they? When you're thinking about it, um, I mean, you can memorize them, but you've got to be careful about that. It gives you a chance you know, to enhance them. You're reducing, you're boiling it down. This is the guts, this is the meat of it, and away you go. And it just comes out naturally in a way where you are debating and speaking and trying to persuade. And that's what it's all about. I've heard, and I'm, I still haven't decided whether or not this is good advice, that an option that you can take is writing a script, not word for word, but say a bullet point where you have, you're saying something completely different to what is written on um, paper. Do you think that's a waste of time or do you think that that could be helpful? I mean, mine normally follows the format in my written submissions. Well, not the format, but the argument or the points I make. You know, I came across that in Australia and I was really surprised by it, how they had you know, completely different arguments. I've got to be careful because as I said, you know, they've read your written submissions first and they're going to read your written submissions later depending on how good their note-taking is. And if you've saved your real zinger, important, great points for your dazzling oral advocacy, they may get lost, they may get missed. And remember that we're trained. We're trained listeners. 
judges are trained listeners, but it's not the best way of receiving information. The eyes are, right? That's how we deal with things visually, particularly these days. And so on the written page, there it is. So you've got to be a bit careful about having something new that's a different argument, I would have thought. First time is on your 10-minute opening address, in my view. I completely understand that. That's why I hadn't decided. So I'm not going to bother doing that then <laughs> for, for mine. Just sticking on the submissions when you're delivering them orally, how do you make it engaging and interesting? And I say this because I am embarrassed to say it, but there have been times where I've been speaking and I've bored myself. No, surely not. And I've just been talking. I can't believe it. <laughs> and I thought, this is, this is so boring. How, how are you listening to me? I, it's, well, it hasn't happened often, but it has happened before. So what advice do you have for our listeners about how they can have a more engaging, making it interesting so that the judges want to listen to what they have to say? Well, uh, you've got to be careful about using humor. <laughs> We're in, the, in an environment we can, but that seldom works. And you've got to be pretty good to throw that in there. And I think it's Scalia that refers to Roe and Wade, and you've probably listened to it. Attorney General uses humor in his opening submissions. It's a shocker, absolute shocker, considering what the case was all about. So, you know, you want to avoid that. I've tried sometimes, and again, you've got to be careful. You read these textbooks, and Keith Evans is all about, you know, give them something to look at and, and so forth, visual aids. I think in the appellate forum and in, in that courtroom, you've got to be a bit careful about handing up things left, right, and center. It can be a bit distracting, just as it can be with a jury. You've got to be careful what you hand up as well and make sure it's right. I mean, I've infamously handed out, unfortunately, a jury trial a long time ago when his prosecutor, the defendant's previous criminal convictions, <laughs> accidentally in a bundle of papers. So that sort of was a visual aid that was memorable. But for the Court of Appeal, I started handing out roadmaps, thinking I'm going to take up some of these things. And then that just became distracting. They started looking at them and they weren't listening to my oral points. And we know that. So I think, look, the obvious, vary your tone, and timbre of your voice, modulation, pauses. Obviously, we know that as advocates, silence, speaking clearly, changing your pace, volume. All those things liven up your presentation, don't they? And your ability to persuade. Start strongly, capture the attention of your audience. We all know that. And get to the point and to engage your, your audience really quickly. When you say start strongly, can you give an example of... And I know I'm putting on the spot here, but can you give an example of starting strongly as opposed to my case is about this and we say that? <laughs> I've been thinking about how I'm going to do that with a case I've got coming up, criminal case, and I've been trying to think about it with my headings as well. It's a defendant, one of these defendants that is involved in the gang scene, so you know, no one sort of warms to him and makes a police statement but mental health issues and on methamphetamine and the police knew that intercepting his phone calls and they put pressure on him about his family off camera. So starting strongly, you know, I'm thinking already and same for my headings that he may be unlikable, but he's vulnerable and we just can't allow the, to behave in this way with our most vulnerable, even if they are unlikable. Now, again, with that in mind, I've got to be a bit careful because it's starting to be a bit emotive. But I'm thinking of these things because uh, under our law, probably the same in England, with the confession, is it oppressive? You know, they haven't beaten it out of them. They just put some pressure on him about his family and started winding him up and winding him up and winding him up, all off camera. And I've got to use that framework. And then the Court of Appeal are going to come back to me. I know they are, and this is knowing your weaknesses, saying, but it's true what he said. Right? And that's unfortunately seems to be looming large in our law as to whether the confession is, is admissible or not. And so... Again, thinking, 
how am I? Where's the harm? Who cares? What's your point? And my point's going to be, hopefully, because we've got all these cases where the court is telling them, you shouldn't be doing this off camera. You shouldn't be pushing these guys' buttons. It's supposed to be on camera. These guys were actually in the interview room and they turned the camera off. And they keep saying, well, you know, I'm sure they've learned their lesson and we're not going to kick it out because it's so important piece of evidence. And I guess, when will they learn? What's it going to take? And it's going to take granting us a retrial and kicking this evidence out to get anyone's attention. So those are things I'm thinking about. Those are things I want to start with. Those are things I'd say sort of orally. Those are headings I'm going to try and put in there, along with the, who cares about Section 30 of the Evidence Act and Section 28 of the Evidence Act. What does that mean? It's boring just even saying those words. So that's what we're talking about, and that's where we've got to craft your submissions, but conscious that this court aren't going to burst into tears when I try and become all weepy about my poor client. That's not the point. And that's the emotional thing we were talking about earlier. Just moving towards our final questions. What are your three practical tips for our listeners when it comes to improving their written advocacy and their appellate advocacy? First, written submissions. That's what we've talked about. It's the most important aspect or component of appellate advocacy and the most important thing to persuade, I believe. You have to think, how can I persuade the court in that document? And consider the headings, incorporating them as we talked about, and that'll improve your advocacy. So you've got to concentrate on how am I persuading throughout your written submissions is everything I'm setting out here part of that persuasion, like your headings that we've talked about, and that's what you should be thinking about all the time. Secondly, um, the oral aspect of advocacy, you know, it's important for appellate advocacy, but you need to realise its purpose. And it's just to provide information and perspective on the written submissions, in my view, which they don't contain or can't contain to give it that extra oomph, to bring it together, to give it a bit of colour and to bring it out of the written paper. That's the point of it. And it's primarily to answer and satisfy questions and doubts that the judges have got. And we know that that's when they start asking you questions. I've seen your written submissions, but Mr. Rapley, this guy's confessed and, and from what he said, it must be true. No one else would knew these details. So that's going to be the concern. You've got to deal with that orally, sure, but here's the harm. We can't allow it. However, you're going to deal with them. Or you're dealing with points in reply to the respondents. So that's, you've got to realise what your purpose of your oral advocacy is. To answer questions, satisfy their concerns and deal with issues in reply, mainly for oral, I reckon. Third and final, read, 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 read those textbooks. There we go. That's a tip. And just try to inquire the good ones if you can. I mean, there's lots out there, isn't there? And you start collecting them and getting into it. And who's got time to read all this stuff when it's not billable? <laughs> but you've just got to do it and you've got to find time to do it. And it's a bit hard doing. It's a bit dry, isn't it? When everyone else has got the Jack Reacher book and, and you've got this sort of heavy textbook. But you get the right ones. And we've talked about some of them. They're readable. They're a bit of fun. And we can only sort of say that in this forum, can't we? Other people won't think that, but we do. And that's part of it. And that's why we enjoy it. And watch good people. Try and incorporate what you like about their style. If it suits your style, remember that. And it's a process of learning all the time. Challenging. So just keep at it. It never stops. Fantastic. And I will be putting the books that you mentioned, listing them, on the advocacypodcast.com. So anyone who wants to find out more about those books can go and get the full list. And my last question, James, where can our listeners connect with you online? Uh, well, you'll, you'll see uh, Bridgeside Chambers, my chambers um, online, bridgesidechambers.co.nz. 
and the barristers are listed on there and I've got my details, email, contact, phone. I'm on there, on LinkedIn. Occasionally go on there. I'm not a big LinkedIn person, but you'll, you'll see me on there as well. So by all means, anyone got any questions or queries, just drop me an email. Love to hear from you. Thank you so much, James, for being on the podcast and answering these questions. It's been really interesting and also helpful for me as well as everyone else that's been listening. So thank you very much for being here. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources. Until next time.